0: Well friends, please stand for the reading of God's Word. This morning we continue in our series through the book of Acts, focusing on the life and the ministry of Paul. We'll probably be in the book just two or three more weeks until we transition to something, something else, um, have really enjoyed and benefited from our time in Acts, and I hope and pray that you have as well. This morning our focus is going to be on Acts 25 and 26. Remember, beloved, these are the very written words of God written for you and written for me. So, on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then, at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in and Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the Emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. So Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially... Because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee, and now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by the Jews, O King. Why is it thought incredible by any of you That God raises the dead. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests but when they were put to death I cast my vote against them and I punished them often in the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Indeed, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. And may he add his blessing to it. You may be seated. Well, this past May, an article was published in the LA Times with the following title, Every President faces a major crisis, what will Biden's be? Well friends I think that the recent challenges in Afghanistan and along our border among other difficulties have answered that question. But in fairness as the article points out all US presidents, whether Republican or Democrat, have to face their very first crisis sometime sooner than later. When Harold McMillan became Britain's first, or became Britain's prime minister in 1957, a reporter asked him what could blow his government off course. He replied, events, dear boy, events. Well, Festus did not realize when he assumed power in approximately 59 AD that he was about to face some events of his own. Events that had the potential to blow his government way off course. Events that he did not want to transform into a crisis. And so he was extremely thankful when a visitor came to his city at what seemed to be an incredibly auspicious time. Friends, friends let's briefly consider the context of our passage. Okay? Going to give some greater context. Back in Acts 24, Paul stood on trial before the Roman governor Felix and the Jewish authorities on a variety of false charges. Charges that the Jews could not prove. In fact, the Jewish high court could not even produce a single Shred of evidence that Paul had either had either violated Jewish law or Roman law Which ironically put the Roman governor Felix in a tremendous bind on the one hand Because Paul was a Roman citizen and the Jews had failed to make their case Felix was not allowed to punish him Or execute him. But on the other hand Felix did not want to anger the Jews by letting him go. So he didn't know what to do. So he did the only thing that made sense to him, keep him under house arrest. In other words, do nothing. As we learned last week Felix did nothing with Paul for two years until ultimately Felix was replaced by Nero. Enter the new Roman governor of Judea. Not Felix. The new governor's name is Festus. We'll try to keep those names straight. First it was Felix. Then it was Festus. Who Nero appointed in approximately 59 AD. To replace the incompetent. The barbaric Felix. As any good governor would do. Festus. Visited a variety of places. He went throughout Judea. Checking in with the cities. Hearing from his constituents. Seeing what's going on. And when Festus arrived in Jerusalem. Among other things. He heard about the number one problem for the Jews. The number one problem of the Jews. Was a man named Paul. And the Jews in Jerusalem wanted Festus to deal with Paul once and for all. Okay, that's the context going on. And the Jews asked Festus to transfer Paul from Caesarea to Jerusalem to stand trial. So that's their request. They want to deal with him. And they asked Festus to do them a favor. Paul was being held in Caesarea, about 75 miles northwest of Jerusalem. Please transfer him back to Jerusalem to stand trial. What do you think was behind that? Two years before, what did Paul's nephew discover was afoot among the Jews? A plot to kill Paul, to ambush Paul. And that was happening again. Festus had no idea. Okay, those same 40 assassins that were going to kill Paul two years before were ready and willing to do it again. So the Jews requested Festus transfer him down to Jerusalem. The trial would have never happened. They would have killed Paul along the way. Okay. And so when he does this, when, um, and so basically Festus asked Paul... Would you allow me to transfer you to Jerusalem so that you could stand trial there under me? What do you think Paul said? Paul's like, um, no, I don't think so. No, no definitely not going to be transferred to Jerusalem. Not a good idea. I know that would not go well for me. Do you remember what Paul said? Paul said to Festus, as a Roman citizen, I have every right to be tried in Caesar's court, not in a Jewish court. And so Paul did something very wise. He said, I appeal to Caesar. In other words, he took it out of Festus's jurisdiction. Okay. And as a Roman citizen, and there weren't that many Roman citizens in the Roman Empire, this was a great privilege for Paul to be a Roman citizen. And so, you know, he had the right of appeal up to Caesar, which he did. Okay which put Festus into a huge bind. Remember, Felix was in a bind. He didn't know what to do. He didn't feel comfortable letting Paul go. He didn't feel comfortable um, punishing Paul and imprisoning Paul, so he did nothing. Now Festus has the same problem, but a worse problem. Paul has appealed to Caesar. And so now Festus has to send him up With a letter of explanation for why he's kept him in prison for two years. He's got to explain to Nero what the charges are against Paul. And why Festus isn't disposing of it in his jurisdiction. If you're Nero, this would have been incredibly annoying. To have this person sent up to you when it could have been so easily dealt with down in Caesarea. So Festus is in a huge bind. This is an event It is blowing into a crisis. And so it is amazing timing that Festus receives a professional courtesy visit. Who does Festus receive a professional courtesy visit from? Okay, because this passage takes place right after Festus has assumed governorship of Judea. And as was typical at the time, Local rulers and dignitaries. Would come visit the new governor. You want some face time with the new governor. You want to shake his hand. Tell him who you are. Herod Agrippa II. And his sister Bernice. With whom it was said. He was having an incestuous relationship. Josephus writes that. That Herod Agrippa II. And his sister Bernice. Were a little too close. Okay. They came together to pay Festus a visit. And Festus was incredibly thankful. Very fortuitous timing. Why was that? Whereas Festus knew nothing about the ways of the Jews. He had nothing to write to Caesar. He was clueless. Herod Agrippa II came from a long line of Jewish rulers. Herod Agrippa II was part of the greater Herodian dynasty. Do you know who Herod Agrippa's great-grandfather was? Herod Agrippa's great-grandfather was Herod the Great who tried to kill the Lord Jesus when he was a baby. Think of all these events that are coming together, okay? His, his great-uncle, Herod Agrippa's great-uncle killed John the Baptist and assisted Pontius Pilate in the killing of Jesus. That's his great-uncle. Herod Agrippa's father, not to be one-upped by, you know, his great-grandfather and great-uncle, Herod Agrippa's own father killed the Apostle James of Peter, James, and John. This Herodian dynasty... They had been viewed as kings of the Jews for many, many years. If there was any ruler who would have had intimate knowledge in the ways of the Jews and the intricacies of their customs and laws, it would have been Herod Agrippa II. And so Festus was so thankful when he paid a visit to Caesarea because of course Festus, what does he do? What does he say to Herod Agrippa? He's like, I need some help. Can you please help a brother out and tell me what to do? Because I've got to send this guy up to Caesar and I need something to write. I've got to explain and justify how we have treated Paul. So Herod Agrippa famously says, let me talk to him. This should give you goosebumps. The Lord Jesus Christ had said to Paul Paul after he saved him, I'm going to take you to the leaders of my people and the kings of the Gentile to bear witness to my name. And we see this happening in real time. Paul is coming before the Herodian dynasty that has tried to exterminate Christians for over 50 years. Okay, here we go. Let's look at our text. Chapter 25 Verse 23, chapter 25, verse 23, follow along in your bulletin. If you need to take a sip of your coffee, now would be a good time to do it. Lots of history here. Understand this is different than when you're going through a Pauline epistle. But this is real history. This is fascinating. This is the history of the early church. This is the history of what happens to our beloved Paul. Without this, we wouldn't be here. Acts 25 verse 23, so on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice, they come into Caesarea with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes, like the commanding officers of the military, like the generals of their day, and the prominent men of the city, they're in Caesarea. Then, at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in, and Festus said, King Agrippa, And all who are present with us. You see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned to me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. They were obsessed with his death. But I found that Paul had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. Verse 26, here's his problem. But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord Nero. Nero had just replaced Felix with him. He didn't want this to start badly. I've got nothing to write about Paul. Therefore, Agrippa, I have brought him before you all and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that After we have examined him, I may have something to write, for it seems to be, for it seems to me unreasonable, in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. You think that's an understatement? Chapter twenty-six, verse one. So Agrippa said to Paul, "I bet this was such a dramatic, such a dramatic setting and scene." Agrippa said to Paul, "You have permission." To speak for yourself. Then Paul it says he stretched out his hand. Before the assembly. And he made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you King Agrippa. That I am going to make my defense today. Against all the accusations of the Jews. Especially because you are familiar. With all the customs. And controversies of the Jews. Again, he would have had an intimate knowledge. He was viewed in a sense as a a king of the Jews. Agrippa's jurisdiction was right next door to Judea. Therefore, I beg you, listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, it's known by all the Jews. Okay, my life, who I am, it is well known. Verse 5, they have known for a long time if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope and the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And it is for this hope I am accused by the Jews, O King. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself, I was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. We learn more in this third like testimony of Paul. We learn more than in the other two conversion accounts. Just how obsessed Saul was with persecuting the early church. New details come out. Verse 10. I did so in Jerusalem meaning I oppose the name of Jesus. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them, like plural. It wasn't just with Stephen. It was with others as well. Verse 11, I punished them often. Wasn't a one-time deal. I punished them often in all of the synagogues. And I tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them. I was so obsessed, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Now go to panel five, take a breath. Go to panel five. We'll look at the rest of the story. Absolutely fascinating. Panel five. Acts 26 verses 12 through 22. This ends the story. In this connection. I journey to Damascus. In other words to persecute Christians. In this connection I journey to Damascus. With authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday O king. I saw on the way a light from heaven. Brighter than the sun. Can you imagine what Paul Experienced. It shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when all had fallen to the ground, did you hear that? Everyone fell to the ground because of the glory of the risen Jesus Christ. When we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Persecuting Christians is the same as persecuting Jesus. Why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goes. In other words, your efforts to stop the church are futile, Paul, and you're only hurting yourself. Verse 15. I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand on your feet. For I have appeared to you for this purpose. To appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me. And to those in which I will appear to you. Delivering you and your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. I'm sending you to open their eyes. So that they may turn from darkness to light. And from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. He continues, therefore, notice to whom he's speaking. He's directing this argument to Agrippa, the king of the Jews, who would have been intimately familiar with the Old Testament. Therefore, O king Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. But declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance, true repentance, true conversion, is met with life change, life transformation. This wasn't box checking, this was life change. Verse twenty one, for this reason the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here, testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and and to our Gentiles. This is brilliant. He is speaking to the so called King of the Jews, someone who would have been intimately familiar, saying, Everything that happened to the Lord Jesus should not have taken anyone by surprise. It was predicted, prophesied, described, it came about exactly according to the times. It was said that he should be the forced first, firstborn from the dead. This Lord Jesus, he is the Messiah promised by the Old Testament. In other words, the death and resurrection of the Messiah, it should not have been shocking. It was predicted that he would live and minister and die. Can you imagine that? Do you understand that? Think about the proof that that is. The Old Testament predicted That the Messiah of God would die, even be crucified, hundreds of years before it happened. That is mind-blowing. It was always the plan. If it wouldn't have been Jesus, it would have been someone just like him. Verse 24. As he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul... You're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. Or as my father would say, he would say, Paul, your elevator doesn't run to the top, okay? You're a few bricks shy of a full load. You're insane. You're crazy. You're wacko. You have studied the Old Testament too long. Is that not exactly how the gospel sounds to a more secularized culture? Like in our own context. If and when you share the gospel to your secular family members, to your neighbors, to your friends, it sounds crazy. It sounds ludicrous that in the 21st century we would believe that a Jewish Messiah who was tortured. And crucified was the Messiah of God, the only hope of salvation. That sounds crazy. And so Festus's reaction is completely understandable. If the Lord is not working in someone's heart, it just sounds crazy. Verse 25. Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. I am speaking true and rational words. That's the great irony. Paul was the most rational and mentally competent person in the room as he preached the gospel to these rulers of the world, as it were. I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. I'm speaking true and rational words. And then he kind of looks at the king. For the king knows about these things and to him... I speak boldly. You need to imagine in your mind's eye that Paul looks directly at Herod Agrippa. And he says, For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done. In a corner. In other words. Herod Agrippa would have known. Exactly what happened. With the Lord Jesus Christ. He would have known. He was crucified. That there were all these rumors. That he had been raised from the dead. That the gospel was spreading like wildfire. All over the Roman Empire. Agrippa would have known this very well. And then he asks him. A pointed question. The most important question. That Agrippa could ever hear. King Agrippa. Do you believe the prophets? I know. That you believe, and I guarantee you, you could have heard a pin drop as he and Herod Agrippa looked eye to eye with that question. He knew that Herod Agrippa could not argue with anything he was saying, he knew that Herod Agrippa was familiar with these prophecies and how kind of eerie it was that Jesus had fulfilled them all. Verse 27. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. Friends, I resonate with that question. There were, I would say, for years, I, lowercase b, believed the gospel before I trusted in the Lord Jesus. You know, an element. I was raised in the church. It It was part of more of a liberal mainline church, but... There was enough of the gospel there. That I heard the gospel from my youth. I believed it was true in elementary school. In middle school. and high school. On one level I knew it was true. But I refused to give my life. To the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that interesting? That on one level you can know that it's true. You believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And yet you will not give your life to Him. Could that be true of any of you today? That you know in the deepest parts of who you are that it's true, but you can't seem to give your life to the Lord Jesus Christ. Is that true of any of you today? It was true of me. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, God gave me the gift of faith and completely and totally changed my life. And the Holy Spirit is more than capable of doing that for you today. Look at Herod Agrippa's response. Now we don't know if he said this like sarcastically. Or whether he said this with sincerity. I'd be interested in your take. 28, Agrippa said to Paul, In a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Like the NIV takes a more cynical interpretation of that question. The NIV kind of interprets Agrippa. It's saying, do you think, do you really think in such a short time that you could convince me to be a Christian? The ESV, which is what this does, doesn't take such a cynical approach. I think there could be some sincerity in what Agrippa's saying. Like, he's saying like, you know, boy, you've made a good argument. And, and you've almost persuaded me to become a Christian. Almost. Tragically, he says, almost. Verse 29, and Paul said, whether short or long, whether short or long, I would to God, I pray to God, that not only you, but also all who hear me this day, might become such as I am, except for these chains, even though he was chained. He was the freest man in the world. His sins had been forgiven. He wasn't under the law in terms of having to be perfect. Jesus was perfect for him. He was saying, I wish all of you were like me, except for these chains. Free, forgiven true son of God. Think of how dramatic that must have been. Then the king rose and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them and when they had withdrawn they said one to another this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. Agrippa said to Festus this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Okay I want to end with this. I know we're running short on time. Just very briefly. I think it's interesting that Paul asks the question that he does in Acts 26, 8. So, that's not on panel 5. Go to the first scripture reading. if you just, In the middle of his speech, Paul kind of, with, with, perhaps with a sense of exasperation, Paul asks in 26, Acts 26, verse 8, Why is it thought incredible by any of you That God raises the dead? I think that's an interesting question for Paul to have asked. You know, in exasperation he said, why do you guys think this is incredible? That God raises the dead? Some might even say Paul's a little bit hypocritical here. How so? This same thing happened to Paul when he put Stephen to death. Stephen gave what is arguably... The greatest sermon ever recorded in Acts chapter 7. Where Stephen in detail goes through and explains how the Old Testament promises and prophecies ultimately relate to the Lord Jesus Christ, the righteous one of Israel. Paul is hearing it. Paul's in the same position as Festus and Agrippa. And he's listening to this whole gospel-centered speech of Stephen about how the Old Testament relates to Christ and what did Saul do? He put Stephen to death. What does that teach us? Friends, it took nothing less than the Lord Jesus Christ appearing to Saul through the power of the Holy Spirit to change Saul's heart conversion is a work of the Holy Spirit from beginning to end. What's Paul's record evangelistically with like the significant leaders that he's witnessed to over the past couple chapters? That would include Felix, Drusilla, Festus, Agrippa, and Bernice. According to Acts, how many of them bowed the knee to the Lord Jesus? How many? Zero. Paul, the most effective evangelist who's ever lived, was 0 for 5. And yet the gospel of Jesus Christ, in the face of persecution, was spreading through the whole world. Friends, the power of the Holy Spirit is incredible. And conversion is his work from beginning to end. I want to encourage you, as you share The gospel of the Lord Jesus. You have to undergird that message with prayer. We need to be a people who beg the Holy Spirit to do with our friends and our family and our co-workers what he did with Paul and what he did with us. If the Holy Spirit had not given you a new heart the Holy Spirit had not taken out your hard stony heart and given you a heart of flesh to respond to the truth of the gospel, you would not be here today. I am a living testimony to the grace of God I was spiritually dead until college when the Holy Spirit took out my heart of stone and gave me a heart of flesh and it had nothing to do with my wisdom or insight or openness. I was the last person you would have ever thought who would have bowed the knee to the Lord Jesus. And yet here I am. And yet here you are. Okay, we may not have like the the rhetorical Um, skills of Billy Graham. If you listen to some of his, some of his evangelistic crusades, it's like it's, it makes your, it makes your skin get goosebumps how gifted he was. Okay friends, it's the Holy Spirit. I would ask you, are you praying for that family member that you so desperately want to come to Christ? Are you praying? Have you prayed this week for people in your life that do not know him? We need to. I'm convicted by this. I need to pray for particular family members. You need to pray for family members that the Holy Spirit would change their hearts so that they could believe. I'll end with this very powerful quote from Spurgeon. About this passage, Spurgeon wrote, Almost persuaded to be a Christian is like the man who was almost pardoned, but he was hanged. Like the man who was almost rescued, but he was burned in the house. A man that is almost saved is damned. Beloved, may we be a people that prays for the Holy Spirit to work in the hearts of lost sinners. Pray with me. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you and praise you for who you are and all that you have done. Father, our prayer is simple. First, we thank you for what you've done in our lives. Father, you've done no less with us than you did with Paul. We were on our own road to Damascus. We were on our own road to hell before you graciously, sovereignly, carefully, caringly pulled out our hearts of stone and gave us hearts of flesh to receive and believe and love God the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that you would do with our family, our friends, our neighbors, and our co-workers. We pray that you would do nothing less than that. Father, bring revival to this country and this community, to the places where we live, work, and play. Holy Spirit, use our testimony to Christ to draw lost sinners to yourself. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.